Hello, and welcome to The Matchup, a storytelling podcast from St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you, the listener, gets to decide who told the most compelling story. I'm your host, Jason Franklin, and today... <laughs> today... Oh, we, yeah, we have um, the Reverend Nancy Vaders. Hi, Nancy. Hi, and Jason. Thank you. You're welcome. And we have the Reverend Dixon Kinzer. Jason. Yes. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it be like fetch. It's not happening. <laughs> okay. Dixon is trying to um, push J Frey because I need a nickname, apparently. You don't. I'm it's sorry. not working. <laughs> it's not working. I'm letting it go. Okay. Cool. It. Dear listener, this is pre show banter that we were doing. So <laughs> I'm, I'm bringing into the recording session. <laughs> As we do. Yes. How, how are you all today? I'm punchy, but I'm good. good. Even though it's been raining for 400 days, I biblical what rain, the sun looks like. and it's gray, and when you're in a dark office where naps could be happening, <laughs> naps could be we happening. feel energized. We're good. Yeah. We got this. No, this is, I'm looking forward to doing this. This is going to be a fun one. Yeah, this is an episode that I have been dying to record. Oh, look at you. Bless ah, your that's a pun, because today we are doing the most interesting true crime story in church history. Dun, dun, dun. Nancy, are you as excited about this episode as I am? You don't understand. I'm so excited. Now, once I got the prompt right. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> I messed that up the first time. I am so excited because this story is insane. Yeah. Dixon, you feeling strong about your pick? Yeah, but I think it's worth saying that if you haven't been following, true crime, of course, is this massive genre, but there's been a lot of kind of rethinking of it as entertainment because mm. In a lot of ways, there's like basically there's been recent material about the ethics of listening to true crime as entertainment. Mm. Is this a good thing or a bad thing for you, us as people? Like, are we honoring victims or are we sort of more celebrating their like grim demise for our own entertainment? You know? Yeah. Um, so it's been interesting. And I, I've had that running around in my head when I was preparing for today because I want to be on the right side of that, you know, and think about those things. Yeah. And be, cognizant um when i was in london we did a jack the ripper tour yeah but we picked one that was like basically trying to tell jack the ripper's story through the stories of his victims oh, interesting. and Ooh. it's like this really interesting like this historian went in and was like yeah most of the things we know about the women that he killed are wrong hmm. and they come from like bad policing and the you know, salacious gossip and you know, the stories of that their lives or real people that had tragic ends um, are told through the lens of their murderer, mm. you know? And I was like, oh yeah, that's like, it's part of like the, as a Christian, like we're, we're trying to witness to the light and stuff. So anyway, I was thinking about that Okay. in this case. We'll that's, see, dear listener, do we get, are we on the right side of this ethically? Yes. And I'm, I'm less concerned about that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let Dixon be the good guy. Well, okay. <laughs> so at each episode, our two guests will present their case. We'll talk a little about it. And after the episode, you will vote on who told the most compelling story. Normally, I would be the only person who knows what each person is going to tell, what story each person is going to tell. But Nancy already knows Dixon's because she tried to do up. it. I bum, bum, messed bum. up. <laughs> it's true. I'm sorry. So since she already knows which story you're doing, do you want to go first, Dixon? I'll go first. Okay. Ooh, okay. All right, Nancy. What is my true crime story? Beckett. Yes. Oh, my. Which is a good one. Famous true crime story in church history is the murder of Thomas Beckett okay. in Canterbury Cathedral, 
with the knights. Okay. <laughs> That's a weird so, clue. That, <laughs> it, was, it was just like four dudes on the chessboard. Yeah. Um, so the story is Thomas Beckett, he's born in 1120 in Cheapside, which is a city in London. Um, and his dad is like a prosperous merchant. So he grows up kind of upper middle class. But he's not like rich and he's not powerful. He's kind of like a lowly dude in that sense. However, um, through his schooling and the friend of one of his fathers, he finds himself clerking for Theobald, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And you have to remember in the day, like clerk is what it sounds like. It's somebody that's like handling books and stuff. But not a lot of folks were literate or mm. could, you know, write. And so if you could do that skill, usually you were a church person, you were a cleric. Um, and so he is working for the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is kind of like the second in power in the Middle Ages to the King of England. And um, it's in this role that he catches King Henry II's attention because Becket is like a really talented administrator. And so Henry's like, I want you to actually be the chancellor, the royal chancellor, who is the person that like manages the, the writing office of the king. And so, cause you're, you're good with books. And so snatches Beckett away and um, Beckett starts working for him as chancellor, as his chancellor. And basically the two of them become really good friends. Um, they hang out, they go hunting together, they game together, they travel together. Um, and because Beckett's role is like a really central part of the administration, he has access to the treasury. And so he gains this like a lavish lifestyle. He's got lots of money vacation homes and castles and stuff like this. Um, and so when Theobald dies, um, Henry is like, I know the perfect new Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to get my boy installed. All right. And so as you do, because basically in, in a titular way now, <clears throat> but certainly then the head of church and well, sorry, that's sorry. Post-Reformation jump forward. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, in, in this case, the king has a lot of influence over who the archbishop is. They're all still Catholic. Don't forget. This is mm -hmm. not, we're not Church of England yet. That's, I jumped forward thinking I was going to explain something that hadn't happened yet. Um, so he is, though, he has a lot of influence over the archbishop of Canterbury, but recognizes that politically in his time, the church is this massive, massive piece of political authority and ha that has a ton of influence over his people and influence over him. And so there's friction in England, as with many of the nation states, about like who who's really more in charge? Is it the crown of the realm or is it like the mm -hmm. church and the pope? So that was always a tension, especially because the church had so much land um, and they had a lot of wealth. Um, so what happens is... Um, Thomas Beckett is made Archbishop of Canterbury. And when he becomes Archbishop, um, he knows that part of his role is going to be to actually protect the interests of the church against the king, against the mm. crown. And so he resists actually being appointed Archbishop. Um, and, and it talks about how um, in the religious tellings of this story, because Beckett's on our feast calendar, and I'll do his collect at the end, um, it talked about how um, basically he was um, having a conversion experience when he becomes archbishop. Like he used to be this guy that was like, I'm in it for the money and wild parties and whatever. But the responsibility of being the archbishop of Canterbury meant that he he moved to being the carer of souls. Um, and um, yeah, he tells the uh, 
One of his biographers says that as, as Archbishop, he changed from a patron of play actors and a follower of hounds to being the shepherd of souls. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, it's even told that like when he died and they took his vestments off him to bury his body, that under all of his like his, uh, robes as Archbishop, he had a hair shirt on, mm. like a, a penitential thing. So I was just saying, it's what you want when you felt that. Um, and you wanted to repent. So essentially, he in this role, Henry wants him to be archbishop. He also wants him to remain his chancellor because that's going to give Henry Max control over everything mm -hmm. in England, church and state. And Beckett's like, I can't do that. So he resigns his chancellorship and it begins a rift between these two friends that really continues um, to the point where um, Beckett has to go into exile to flee from Henry's wrath. Like Henry's hacked at him. Um, and don't forget, this is Henry II. This is like hundreds of years before Henry VIII, who will come into this story by the end. Um, so Beckett's in exile in France. And while he's there, Henry um, kind of flexes his power. He's like, let me show you who's really boss while you're gone, Mr. Archbishop. And so he... He has um, Beckett's nemesis, the Archbishop of York, um, do a coronation for <laughs> Beckett's oh, kid. Ooh. I know what. And so there, there's all kinds of like you know intrigue and kind of middle school drama. Um, but the Pope finally intervenes and is like, "You guys have got to work this out. You need to open negotiations." So Henry says it's okay, and so he arranges for Beckett to come back into England safely, um, and um, Beckett not to be outdone and being spiteful before he leaves France, excommunicates, once he receives the authority of Archbishop back, excommunicates the Archbishop of York, the Archbishop of Sal Salisbury, and the Bishop of London. Gee. Hell who had all no been involved fury. in that coronation that he was hacked off about. Oh, God. Right? Jeez. So Beckett comes back in and to the people, he's a hero. Crowds are cheering, the monks are thrilled that he's there, we love this guy. But everybody that's like loyal to the crown is, giving him side eye, mm. right? This guy, nope. He he is not he is not our friend. He is not um, respectful of or deferential enough to the king. Um, and so when the archbishops of York and Salisbury and the Bishop of London make their way to King Henry's uh, summer home in Normandy and they tell him that, hey, your, your boy that you just brought back into the country excommunicated us, um, Henry is enraged and he's and he and he says the story is that he out loud says, Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? All right. <laughs> and as the story continues, these four knights that are there sort of take this exclamation of frustration as a missive to go and do something about it. And so they head down to Canterbury to find Beckett. Now, um, when it comes to this actual murder that happens, um, we have a lot of actually eyewitness accounts. There yeah. are five eyewitness accounts, at least of it, from people that were there, one of whom, um, Edward Grimm, was so close that during the skirmish, he actually got wounded by one of the knight's swords. Ooh. So, like, this is not hearsay, um, what happens to Beckett. And even in medieval times when, you know, historicity and sources were not always... Um, Reliable, these are pretty good. Um, and so the story is that these knights all show up and um, they're looking for Beckett. Um, he has been um, in the Archbishop's palace, 
But because these knights are looking for him, the monks persuade him to go take refuge in the cathedral itself because cathedrals in the Middle Ages were sanctuaries. Mm. And, and by that, I mean literally, like if you were guilty of a crime, you could go and hang out there for a certain amount of time. And it was kind of a place where, look, the, the law couldn't touch you. Um, however, these knights were not going to hear about it. And so they basically kicked down the door of the cathedral, swords drawn, terrifying those inside. And they're shouting, where is Thomas Beckett, traitor to the king and the kingdom? Um, and then they basically see him and they rush at him, uh, manhandling him. And their intent was to drag him out of the church and either escort him away in chains or kill him outside. But Beckett has hold of like one of the columns of the cathedral and they can't get him off. Um, and they're trying to like get him off there. And so at this point, it says one of the knights raised his sword for the first time and they bring it down on Beckett. And here, dear listener, <laughs> I'm going to share some of the details of this thing. Um, if you don't want to hear that, jump forward about 30 seconds and then you won't have to hear it. That was a good trigger warning. On your mark, trigger warning, get set, <laughs> jump. Okay, if you're still here, here we go. Um, just reading history. So the first knight brings his sword down and basically lops off the crown of his head. Mm. Um, two of the other knights then start to attack Beckett. The, all the monks flee. Then a third blow comes down um, that actually ends his life. Um, and essentially it says in these biographies that um, Beckett's crown had separated from the head oh. So that the blood turned white from the brain and the brain equally red from the blood. Ew, that Ooh. is gross. Gnarly! Oh. There's in a, the sanctuary. The, in, in the, and the thing that, and I, I, I didn't know if I wanted to say all that because it's gross. Yeah. But it's important to remember this happens in the cathedral. Mm -hmm. This is inside the house of God, inside this with most witnesses. holy and sacred place with witnesses. There's even an evil priest that puts his foot on the neck and there's other stuff in there. You can look up Mall Clerk if you want to know more about this kind of thing. M-A-U-C-L-E-R-K -E for evil clerk. Um, but at the end of the murder, he says, let us go, knights. This fellow will not get up again. Ugh. Man, harsh burn. So it's... It happens in the cathedral, and it's important to note at this point that even though I've told the story where it's like Henry says this thing and the knights go and do this deed, it's actually unclear who killed him. Mm. The intrigue around this is that nobody really knows who gave the order. Um, was it the king? Could have been the king? Like there's lots of conspiracy theories and like, you know, speculations about was it the Archbishop of York or was it mm. Henry or was it somebody else that was loyal to the crown or did Henry have somebody do it, you know, to keep his hands clean or whatever. Um, but afterward, after the murder, chaos ensues. Nobody knows what to do to the point that Beckett's body stays in the cathedral bleeding out on the ground for like hours Great. until they can figure out what they're supposed to do. Um, mm -hmm. Eventually they take him and they put him on the altar, um, which is, kind of sacred um, in some ways. Like that's where he ends up hanging out before they can bury him. While he's bleeding out though, because this is the Middle Ages, people are coming with little like ampulla, like little uh, vials and scooping up his blood because they're anticipating like his canonization. Mm. Um, and it turns out when he becomes a, a site for pilgrims, they start selling it to people mixed with water. <laughs> Old school eBay right there. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I mean like, They're dude. prepared. Um, they were, they were entrepreneurial. That's right. Yeah. They were. You know? Yep. Um, let's give them credit. So he eventually, they, 
they bury him in the crypt in Canterbury Cathedral and he becomes a pilgrim site really, really quickly. Like news of his martyrdom spreads all over Europe. Um, and there are pictures of him in like churches in Italy and France and Spain, like everywhere. Beckett is kind of known because of this um, this murder and, and really his martyrdom. And what's interesting is that he's canonized three years after the murder by the Pope, like one of the fastest ever, becomes a saint, mm. um, St. Thomas Beckett in 1170. Um, no, 1173. And in 1174, King Henry II does penance for this murder. Um, he doesn't necessarily, it's not to say that he did it or didn't do it, but basically he goes and does a pilgrimage where he like walks over broken glass and like does the thing where he ends in Canterbury Cathedral at the tomb of Becket, mm. his, his former friend, to kind of repent of this thing. Um, which is really, really interesting. Um, in 1220, uh, they move his body from the crypt to a, a big new shrine that's upstairs in the chapel, uh, a, a chapel in the cathedral. Um, and it's like one of the most important pilgrimage sites in all of Europe. And if you've ever visited Canterbury Cathedral and you're like, I don't remember seeing that, you're right, it's not there anymore. Because there was another King Henry that had conflict with the church and the state and wanted to consolidate power in the hands of the crown and not the church. And guess what symbol might be a threat to his mm. intentions? Thomas Becket. So Henry VIII had every image of Becket that he could find in England destroyed and removed, wow. including this chapel. What an insecure dude. <laughs> and like scattered his remains. Like wow. they, they don't know where they are. So there is a huh. new marker in Canterbury Cathedral um, where all this happened. But like the chapel's gone and Interesting. Really, they don't really know where there actually there is some talk of his his relic and that his tunicle that still has blood on it has they, they they're pretty sure they have it and it's on loan from I forget who it was to Canterbury they, huh. on like the 800 and whatever anniversary of his martyrdom, which was a couple of years ago. Um, so legacy uh, we have Canterbury Tales is about pilgrims going to see Thomas Beckett. Um, mm -hmm. in Canterbury Cathedral. Uh, T.S. Eliot's murder in the cathedral is about Thomas Beckett's murder in the cathedral. Uh, there's even a movie in 1964 with Peter O'Toole. I feel like we need a Netflix series. Yes. I feel like awesome. this is a great, mm -hmm. maybe without the head cleaving part, but like. No, I'd say with it. Just leave that <laughs> So leave they never in. like caught the four knights then? No. Yeah, no. Interesting. And that's why they're kind of like, Someone was acting with impunity. Mm -hmm. Somebody was, somebody had them carry out this hit, you know, and you gave them political cover. Mm. Yeah. I, I vote, I vote the crown. I vote. Well, let's, let's take it all the way to the top. I yeah. vote the crown. Yeah. It's a little sideways order, you know, like, yeah. oh, wouldn't it be nice if you guys went down there and just, Like Christmas know. vacation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the nights are Eddie. You don't know what to get for me for Christmas. <laughs> the nights are <laughs> <laughs> and Beckett is Frank Shirley. I love okay. this. Uh -huh. great. That's right. <laughs> um, we remember Thomas Beckett um, on December 29th. That is the day of his martyrdom, hmm. um, which is when we remember people on their feast days, the day of their death. And the collect for his day goes like this. Oh, God, our strength and our salvation. You called your servant Thomas Beckett to be a shepherd of your people and a defender of your church. Keep your household from all evil and raise up faithful pastors and leaders who are wise in the ways of the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, 
the shepherd of our souls, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. 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 Thank you, Dixon. Yeah. That was interesting. Right. That's an intense story. It's so like, hard. You feel the you tension like. It. It's visceral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The intrigue of it. Yeah. The, but think about like Henry II. Like today, leaders are like, how do I shift the blame? How do mm-hmm. I avoid responsibility? How can I like, you know, find a way to wriggle around this or just let the press cycle blow over? This guy steps up and is like, it might have not even been his fault, but he's like, ultimately, this is on me. It was his fault. I set, <laughs> I set the tone. So he does penance, like he owns it. Yeah, and like the picture of like the most powerful monarch in Europe, like walking through France and and mm. into England with with other common pilgrims doing this work. I mean, that's a powerful image on the other side of this whole horrible story too. I was like, wow. Yeah. He still did it. He ordered it. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Henry the Second. Judge jury and execution over here. And then I just, you know, you know that Henry the Eighth, like you have this caricature of Henry the Eighth in your head. And then when you hear what he did to like Beckett's legacy, come on, man. You didn't even know this guy. (laughs) How insecure are you? Oh, bless his heart. Thank you. That was good. Would do you wish he could have covered it? I if you had asked me that before I had found this, I would say yes, because it's a great story. But this story is insane. Yeah? Yes. You ready to tell us? I'm so ready to tell okay. it. All right, what you got? Okay. So I was telling Jason earlier, you know, Unsolved Mysteries, when you watch Unsolved Mysteries, the part, you know, the tension is like, oh my God, this horrible thing happened. And no one knows who did it. And no one, this is the opposite of that. Okay. <laughs> Everyone knows who did this. It was super public purposefully. And it's called the Potsy Conspiracy. From Florence in 1478. Okay. So Florence in 1478 is like the height of the Renaissance. So you can imagine, you know, all this beautiful architecture and art. And there were the two families in Florence that had a lot of wealth and power. And the one everyone knows is the Medici family. Basically running Florence, controls all the banking. But there was another family called the Pazzi family. And they were always kind of second fiddle Mm. to the Medici. So this story is, it's like the Hatfields and the McCoys, but bougie. Okay. Okay. So put yourself in Florence during the Italian Renaissance. Medici family controls all the affairs of the city. Uh, A lot of North Central Italy too. So it's not just Florence. They Mm. control kind of, you know, this whole area in Italy. And the Medici brothers, Lorenzo, and Giuliano were the powers that be. And Lorenzo was the oldest, so he was kind of the central point of power in all of Florence. But Giuliano was always, they were always together, they made decisions together. You know, he was definitely the right-hand man to his brother. So the Medicis were like this true Renaissance family. You know, they were poets and politicians and scholars, and they controlled the banking. And the important thing in this story is that they controlled all of the political appointments Mm. in Florence and all the surrounding areas. So then you have the poor Pazzi's, right? I mean, even their name, it's just (laughs) not Doesn't roll off your tongue like Like, Medici. Yeah, you're like, oh, there we are. Like Lorenzo, Giuliano, the Medici. And then it's like the Pazzi's. (laughs) And this is true to their story, right? They're always, they had plenty of power. They had plenty of wealth. 
and they had plenty of influence, but they were always second. They didn't have control over these political appointments. They just didn't have the type of power that mm. they wanted. So the resentment is just palpable. And they would do anything to gain control of Florence. And they had an ally in the Pope. So Pope, this guy's name is weird. Pope Sixtus the Fourth. Oh gosh, that is the Pope. I know. It's like six, four, what are you? <laughs> so Pope Sixtus the Fourth. Um, supposedly a man of God, but I've yet to see any evidence of it, <laughs> no. um, was all about power. So he made political and religious appointments, you know, all he's like the OG Nepo baby maker. <laughs> like he is making all of his family and friends, you know, all these political, you know, high end appointments so that they can, you know, do his bidding and boost his influence. And he hated Lorenzo and Giuliani. Because they always rejected any political appointment he made mm. uh, because they wanted to make them. And this was their area of control. And so he would send his political appointment, you know, he'd send it down to Florence and they'd be like, nah, nah, I don't feel like it. And the one thing that really, really ticked him off is that he named some dude. I don't know. I didn't write his name down. Didn't feel like it was important. Seven some dude. <laughs> he named some dude the Archbishop of Pisa, which is right you know, right north of uh, Leaning Towerland. Yeah. Leaning Towerland, of course. And Lorenzo wouldn't even recognize the appointment. He was like, mm, yeah, I don't, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the Pope was furious. Okay. And the Pope's in Rome? Pope's in Rome. Okay. So the Pazzi family gets in with the Pope and they're like, yeah, we all hate these dudes. These dudes are <laughs> awful. And they all hate them for the same reason, right? Because they're yeah. like roadblock their power yeah. and so he fully supports this is kind of like henry the second right does he outright say it mm, we don't know but he fully supported their assassination plot for the medici brothers and the pope and the pazzis which sounds like some <laughs> weird italian restaurant you would not want to go to um it's like a ska they're kind of like co-conspirators <laughs> and so they saw this as like their opportunity to gain power and control of Florence and all of Northern Italy. So this was the plan. They had to kill both the brothers at the same time, and it had to be very public because they wanted the people of Florence to see who was now in control. And so they tried a couple times. So there were like these big dinners. I don't know, potlucks. I don't know what they were. So there were the, the brothers, they were both supposed to be at these dinners. But for whatever reason, one of them didn't come. Hmm. And so every time they'd be like, all right, tonight's the night. And then Giuliano would be like, oh, I got a stomach bug. I can't come. <laughs> um, so they're like, ah, oh, damn it. I got COVID. <laughs> I got COVID. I can't make it to the potluck. Hmm. And so they would, they just absolutely would not kill one. They hmm. wanted both at the same time. So a couple times they planned this. It didn't happen. And finally, on Easter Sunday, Ooh. 1478, at Florence's most famous cathedral the duomo wow there are thousands of people there for easter mass including lorenzo and giuliano de medici so they're all there and they have to have a sign right because there's too many people how do you know when you're gonna like jump out and attack and and kill the sign is the priest Elevating the host no. oh, communion <laughs> because everybody's going to be looking at the altar. Oh. It's something that the assassins could all see, 
because, you know, the altar is raised and, and mm-hmm. here, you know, you've raised it up over your head. So at that moment, they jump out. Giuliano goes first. They stab Giuliano de' Medici so many times that he bleeds out in front of thousands of people on Easter Sunday on the marble steps of the Duomo in front of the altar. Whoa. Dude. It's intense. And everyone is panicking and screaming. Like you can imagine this moment, you know, in this space yeah. with, you know, some some things I read said there were like 10,000 people in there, wow. which you can believe because it's Easter mass yeah. Yeah. in That's Florence. A, yeah. And so Giuliano dies and right in front of everyone. But the other assassins who I also read were priests. So they're probably not very good assassins. <laughs> I mean, or bless, very good priests. bless her heart. They're failing at everything. <laughs> they can't, they're failing at all. They're failing at life. So they don't quite get Lorenzo. They slash his neck a little bit, but he's faster than they are. And he's got buddies around him who kind of push them off. Mm-hmm. And he runs into the sacristy of the Duomo and locks himself. If you've ever been to the Duomo in Florence, the sacristy doors are like 10 feet tall, Mm. metal, you know, with all this complex, like sculptural engraving in it. So he locks himself and two buds, two good guys behind the sacristy doors and no one can get in. And so he sits there and waits and until like, you know, cause all the people are rushing around and they're screaming. And so, I'm assuming, I'm making an assumption here that he probably doesn't know at this point that his brother has been stabbed to death. Mm, Right. He might know. It's just unclear because it all happens so quickly. And so he stays in the sacristy until it's safe to come out. And the Pazzi family was kind of thinking like, maybe we've done enough for people to be so jarred that they're like, oh, like what's happening here? Mm. Like maybe, maybe power, like everything's just out of control. We don't know who's in charge. But... Lorenzo lives. He becomes this like hero to the people of Florence and the Pazzi family and all the conspirators. This is my favorite big word to use that you never get to use. They were like defenestrative, which is a defenestrated, which is a fancy word for just thrown out the window, but not just thrown out the window, thrown out the window and left to the will of the people. And then other conspirators and assassins were just publicly like hung in the square. So everybody knew like Lorenzo de' Medici was in charge, still had power, you know, nothing that the Pope or the Pazzi family want happened. And the Pope is pissed. Like he is just because he, this is like his birthday party he was planning and no one showed up. And so he's pissed that it failed. And so he excommunicates Lorenzo and the entire Florentine government. He's like, that's it, all of you. And he told all the local priests that they couldn't have any holy services of any kind. But most of them are like, eh, whatever, we're going to keep doing it. So they do. Um, Even though all the holy, you know, all the holy services were supposed to be suspended. um, And the Pope, he's just, he continues like to be challenged his power and so he's like you know what i'm gonna find somebody else to do my bidding so he gets in with the king of naples and wages war on florence but florence rallies (laughs) against this tyrant pope and lorenzo is like leading the way and he survives and eventually pope sixtus dies okay this is where it gets a little crazy i know it's been crazy i know it's been crazy i mean we're bleeding out in the duomo on easter sunday so i know it's been crazy the pope is trying to punish lorenzo 
for not for dying, not, not, yeah. not being murdered. It's like, I will, I will get you. So anyway, Pope Sixtus dies eventually. And Lorenzo de' Medici is like, you know what? It's really too much trouble for me to just have this like constant battle with popes. Like it's, it's costing me too much money. It's too much trouble for the people of Florence. Whoever this next dude is, I'm going to be his butt. Like we're going to be bros. It's going to be fine. And this is Innocent the Eighth. So Innocent the Eighth and Lorenzo de' Medici kind of become buddies. And it just so happens that Lorenzo's son, Giovanni de' Medici, eventually becomes uh, a cardinal. He gets a cardinal oh. appointment. But not just that. He becomes Pope Leo X. Oh, Lorenzo's son, Giovanni, becomes Pope Leo X. And what does Pope Leo X do? He's the one who excommunicates Martin Luther. Yes, he is. Oh. And sets the stage huh. for the Reformation. Wow. This story is wild. Wow. So I thought it was wild when I just learned about the murders. You know, yeah. like, because you have this dramatic scene and, you know, all the, the craziness and the people and the bleeding out and the Easter Sunday, I was like, this is it. This is the story. And then I keep reading and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> His son, Lorenzo's son, becomes Pope Leo X and excommunicates Martin Luther and it leads wow. to the Reformation and it's just huh. crazy. So what would have happened if Lorenzo had been killed with his brother yeah. in the Duomo? Like how would things have that's what would have changed? It's quantum leap stuff, y'all. Like where <laughs> butterfly effect. <laughs> where's yeah. Sam? Um, <laughs> where's Sam when we need him? Um, it's a wild, wild true crime story. Wow. And I'm just not gonna get over it for a really long time. <laughs> I knew parts of this story. I don't know about you, but I knew I knew parts of this story. I didn't know that's but I called. really didn't know kind of the whole everything surrounding it, the backstory and then what happened afterwards so when you put it all together it's just wild it's wild i've heard it i knew <gasps> i knew parts of it too i've heard it referenced a lot by different whether it's fiction or things in church history but like i've i've never sat through the whole thing and when but i will say while you're telling the story in my mind Everybody has like a mafia accent. This is basically the mafia. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Giovanni, you want to go over the Pope and be a cardinal or what? Hey. <laughs> We're going to kill them both. We're going to kill the de Medici's. You get the swords and I get the other two. We'll kill them in the church. Uh, when the priest raises up the bread. Put it up there. Yeah. Padre. Hurry it up. <laughs> that moment to me is so. Oh gosh. I mean, it really is kind of ingenious. They really. So evidently this plan to. theatrical. To like assassinate them. Yeah on Easter Sunday was like their third attempt. So it was kind of like a rushed plan, huh. but they actually thought it through brilliantly because what is the moment in that situation with all those people that everyone's going to see? Yeah. They're going to see the host yeah. elevated yeah. above the preset. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm sure whoever was <laughs> whoever was celebrating that Eucharist <laughs> is probably like, whoa, this was not, don't take it literally, guys. This, don't. <laughs> I'm sure it was just a mad, a madhouse. It's an Easter oh. to remember. Yeah. <laughs> With like priestly assassins. Bad priestly assassins. Yeah, bad priestly assassins too. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. couldn't even get the job done. I know. We're Either not, way. I mean, we're not known for our competency. <laughs> <laughs> or evidently your skill as assassins. That's true. And I the sacristy is a great, a while, but. the sacristy, sacristy is a great place to hide. 
This is odd. I've hidden in the sacristy before. I mean, not not from gun. I mean, uh, sword wielding assassins. But I mean, not many people go in there. <laughs> that's where all the dishes get done. So you don't want to go in there. Man. But just it? thinking about that door, it's huge. Google it. The sacristy door of the Duomo. Because how, first of all, how'd they open it? How'd they shut it? It's huge. Yeah. It, he had his buddies. Adrenaline. Was that enough? Adrenaline. You're right. People yep. can pick cars up. Yep. So I guess they can shut metal sacristy doors. I wonder what happened to the Potsy family after this. But they all got killed, dude. Did they all? All of them? Many of them were thrown out windows and destroyed. And <laughs> many everybody grab a Potsy. Everybody yeah. <laughs> pick your favorite Potsy <laughs> and bring them to the town square at midnight. Uh, I'm sure some got away. Surely. I'm sure there were like women and children. Yeah. Interesting. That got away. But most of them. And I think the higher ups were the ones who were hung in the square just so everyone could be like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do that. Yeah. Maybe an assassination plot on this powerful family is a bad maybe idea. Maybe be happy with second place. You know what? They had it good, right? They had all the power and all the money and they didn't even have to really do anything. No. Why? Why would you? You can't <sighs> leave well enough alone. I know. I blame the Pope. Yeah. Sixtus. <laughs> Sixtus. The fourth. Hey, Sixy, <laughs> what are you doing? No you, just, you know what our stories have in common beyond bleeding out in sacred spaces is the fact that these um, these archbishops appointments or these archbishops just bad actors, yeah. like Archbishop of Pisa. Yep. Yeah. What if Lorenzo had just been like, all right, he's fine. And like accepted that. Right. There's just so many like little. Yeah. Caveats. Well, it also makes you think about like with the Reformation just on the horizon, like why the message of the Reformation really took root. Because people yeah. are like, yeah, what? we should probably do something people about are like, this what thing. is up with these church people? <laughs> what is yeah. up with these popes? <laughs> like, and it was a theological thing to some degree for Martin Luther, but it's also, it manifests itself in like <laughs> the life of people and like how they were encountering this church that was like, yeah, just give us your money and yeah, we're just gonna do what we want with it. And, right. Yeah. It's just crazy that Lorenzo's son, Lorenzo de Medici, who is basically like almost assassinated by a pope. Catholic enemy. His number son one. becomes a pope, and not just any pope, the pope yep. who excommunicates Martin Luther. Man. I mean, what are the it's wild. I'm not over it. See, I told you I'm not going to get over it. <laughs> I'll be like 80 years old shows. and be like, let me tell you the story. <laughs> it's <go>. crazy. <laughs> and they'll be like, crazy old lady. She didn't know what she's talking about. No way that happened. It sounds unbelievable. It, it sounds scripted. It sounds like it was written by Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> or like Dan Brown. <laughs> or Dan Brown. Yeah, or Dan Brown. There's That's a Dan right. Brown version of both of our stories. I think there's so. got to Woven be. in there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you guys. <laughs> that was that was great. Murders <laughs> in the cathedrals. Ooh. It was good. I feel I like Jason it. needs a nap after this. I think we've, we've drained you. Nap. Yeah. <laughs> but that was really good storytelling. So thank you. You're welcome. This one. Um, yes, it was. <laughs> uh, the cases have been presented, and now the power is in your hands, listeners. In the episode description is a link to a poll. Let us know who you think told the most compelling story. We have some new guests coming this season, um, so please check every week for new episodes. You can like and subscribe if you want to hear more. You can learn more on our webpage, thematchuppodcast.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening and voting, and we will see you later. Bye. Bye. Yeah, we'll see you later. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha.